Right, so here we are again, Mr. Highland. Here we, we are, are back again for another um, another episode of Does Contain Nuts, looking the podcast this, that guys. grabs life by the balls. It certainly does, mate. I'm looking. This today's going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to it. It is. To it. It is. I'll just, I'll just drop a little sneaky preview. Apparently, uh, well, not apparently. The bloke we're interviewing for anyone who's listening uh, used to used to be a commander of Black Hawks, and I love stuff like that. You know, Black Hawk Down, the, the choppers. Oh, yeah. I'm excited about this. <laughs> I think it's going to have some amazing stories. Amazing so do I. Stories. Yeah, so do I, man. So do I. Oh, what have you been doing this morning? I've been, I've been for a 20-mile hike. Oh, yeah, you have. 20-mile <laughs> hike. Who hikes for 20 miles? Surely there was better things to do on a Sunday morning. No, because me and James were, were um, practising because we're going to try and walk from Maine to the lakes. I don't know how far that is. That's like uh, 120 mile. Ooh, 120 mile walk? Yeah. In one go? No, no, not one go. But we're going to get our bags packed up and then obviously we're going to try and walk 25 miles a day and, wow. and then pitch up and camp up. So we're getting like, we're getting used to now. So I've had the bag on, we're getting used to what some of the stuff extra we need. We're getting mm. used to the footwear and seeing other footwears. But I obviously tried out my new barefoot ones, didn't I? How were they like? They were quite good, to be honest, like. But my calves, the, the, my calves need broken in and my heels need broken the in. The thing is, with those shoes, in my opinion, is we, you uh, people have been wearing trainers ever since we've been alive, right? Or shoes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then to go, I think some people make a mistake. I don't, you haven't because you've worn them before, haven't you? But yeah. people go from, go from wearing normal trainers to then just barefoot trainers because they've read that they're really good. And then yeah. it just the gait, how they walk, is completely screwed and spanners. And they wonder why they've got, you, know, you get calf pains and knee pains the next day. Isn't it? See, and that stuff, but like I always walk around barefoot in the house, all mm. over the place. You know what I mean? I've kind of broken my feet in. I've kind of, mm. I am still experiencing my coughs are still stretching out a bit from them, mm. but I do find them way better. I, yeah. I, I love them. I love yes. them already. There's also a story about your little hike, isn't there? Why don't you tell everyone what happened to you this morning? So, where we walked to is called, I think it's Fink, Fink, Finkdale Abbey or something like that. It's like, um, an old monastery type thing that's been bombed up. But right next to it is actually loads of bunkers where they used to keep all of the ammunition for the World War II. Cool, so man. I'm guessing that they've bombed and hit and missed and knocked the abbey down and what have you. So me and James have climbed over the fence into this big area to explore. We didn't know what it was at this time. And then we started climbing and, and we kind of ripped the, um, it was blocked off by, you know, them cages. Like, um, mm. So like the fencing that you have around in, in events, mm. all the doors were blocked over by them. So we've like snuck inside of there and had a little look around and sneaky. I, I, I kind of needed a shit to be honest. So <laughs> if you're 10 miles away from home, you need a shit. Dear God. There's only two things you can you, do. You've got to go, mate. You, you really? No, you got to go. Yeah. So I've done a tactical stand to your piss first because I didn't want any accident on my shorts. Good thinking. <laughs> I squatted against the wall inside, right, just outside of the, the World War II bunker. Had a shit. <laughs> I thought if I'd squatted down deep enough, it would just be like a, a non-wiper. Mm. Uh, I had a pizza last night, put it this way, there was, there was bits stuck to me arse. <laughs> oh, mate. So I, had to, I was looking. I didn't, do, I didn't do an assessment of the area. I didn't get me fucking dock leaves ready at hand. So I'm scratching around trying to get bits. There was hardly out there. I'm shouting to James to get his leaves. And uh, I ended up just doing a dog 
thing and just get me boom and oh, what's wrong with you similar shit <laughs> you are disgusting and Jesus. then i had to walk 10 miles back but yeah listen that's nothing nothing compared <laughs> to what our guest rick austin from america usa texas has done yeah. he has most have done way worse things than this so we're going to bring him me. on we're going to bring him on. This is Mr. Rick Cotto joining us here. He's going to pop himself in here in a sec. Just the man here. There Jazz he is. Mr. Rick. Yo. What's up? What's going on, man? How you doing? Oh, just enjoying this uh, Memorial Day weekend here in uh, beautiful Georgetown, Texas. <laughs> nice. How about you? I actually don't know. So, so what's the... Mem- I don't watch news. I don't know anything. Like, what, what's the Memorial Day? What's it for? Oh, uh, so Memorial Day is a, it's, it's an annual, really an, an annual holiday that uh, just pays honor to uh, fallen, fallen heroes that have served in, in the armed forces. Mm. And, uh, you know, and then probably to a greater extent, um, their, their family members as well. Mm. Uh, that's primarily for the, uh, those that have served and, um, and then have died, of course. So, yeah, man, yeah. and that's quite close to your heart, I imagine, right? Because you've spent a hell of a lot of time in the, in the forces, yeah, just a little bit. Uh, Phil, I spent uh, right at about 26 years in the uh, mm. in the second best army in the world. I'll, <laughs> never, I'll never disrespect the, the, the Queen's army, <laughs> <laughs> outnumbered, man. You're only saying that because you're outnumbered, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I know better. <laughs> But yeah, about 26 years, and uh, yeah, so awesome. it is pretty close to my heart. It's awesome. And it was during. Go on, Lee. I'll let you. I'll let you go. I was just going to say it was during that time you met your lovely wife, who we had a very, really, really good chat to a few weeks ago as well, right? Yes, I was like, I was actually in the other room. I don't know if you noticed. I know you all were moderating, of course. So mm. um, I had a chance to like pop in for a little bit on the mm. on the channel, and then. Uh, but yeah, I was like, well, she's told a lot of our story on <laughs> What am I going to talk about? <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, so, okay, well, let me get out of this room and I'll come back next week. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, we met in the military. Uh, we met when I was in, my, in the military in the first year uh, when well, I was in Korea. So, what we normally do with this is we'll kind of take, because obviously this is about helping people mentally, physically, emotionally, and just sharing stories from people who have obviously lived a life where it's going to involve a lot of mindset, where it's going to involve physical aspects and stuff like that. What we yeah. normally do is we start by just taking you back to like your childhood. Okay. And just working through a bit of a timeline, hitting the main points of like the, the super exciting stuff, bearing in mind some of the stuff that you probably don't feel is, is, is exciting where you probably actually, Mm. <laughs> fascinated by <laughs> yeah so, we'll see man yeah, no, no pressure Rick no pressure mate yeah, you better yeah. be interesting <laughs> I know right that's what he said I was like hmm yeah. <laughs> hit us up mate give us, give, us, give us a bit of a timeline of your life Rick where, where did it where did it sort of begin okay yeah so I think uh, life for me began in the womb no I'm just kidding <laughs> did it really did it ask did I ask <laughs> Yeah, so no, seriously, um, in Chicago, I was, uh, I was born in Chicago, uh, Illinois, 
uh, which is in the Midwest of the country. And I have um, five siblings. I have an older brother and I have four sisters. And so we grew up in inner city Chicago. Um, and my mom was kind of, you know, my dad was around, but really my mom was a single parent primarily. So um, we kind of grew up in the hood, you know, if you want a, um, if you want a correlation to that, just look at the uh, movie called Boys in the Hood, mm. or New Jack City. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can get an idea of my neighborhood that I kind of grew up in. So, but yeah, that's where it started for me. Uh, and I would, I would spend 18, uh, almost, yeah, right at 18 years in, uh, in Chicago. Um, because I was in, you know, every, every home is kind of dysfunctional. Uh, some homes are maybe a little bit more dysfunctional than others because we're, we're just humans and we're imperfect. So I was part of a, probably a more of a dysfunctional home, so to speak, because, you know, there was a divorce in the family. And so I found myself, um, especially in my high school years, I attended four different high schools um, because I was moved around quite a bit. And that's not very common. Um, you know, you attend one high school, ideally, you don't attend four. Yeah. <laughs> just greedy. <laughs> yeah, I'm just greedy for more, you know. Um, but yeah, how far you want me to go into some of those details? How, how, how was that for you? Like, um, how was that? Obviously, how, how old were you in high school? What yeah, so you start high school at either 12 or 13. Okay, and then you go for four years. So, because yeah. um, well, obviously it's 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 hard enough as it is. is. Now I can think back to when I went from from like the the primary school, what we call them, into secondary school, and it's quite a big step. It's quite a big thing. It, it you've got to find all new friends. Everything's new. Everything's different, and it's pretty scary, isn't it? Really. Well, and, and imagine do, doing that four times. Yeah, it, it probably it's it's not the best, is it? <laughs> hey, so I'll, look, I'll give you some context, then, Lee. Um, so not only is it scary, it can be kind of dangerous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because uh, so the first high school I went to was Bowen High School, and I'm not sure about England, but um, you know, gangs are a problem. Yeah, mm. you know, because people are always looking for a sense of belonging, right? And so. Um, kind of gangs were a problem in the schools. And I was like a buck 40, you know, when I started school, when I started high school. And uh, that first school was really tough to make friends. I didn't even know how long I was going to be there. Plus, I had a couple of guys from the gangs uh, trying to recruit me or beat me down. I don't know. Both, it looked the same to me, beat me down <laughs> or recruit me. I don't know. <laughs> so that first year, man, I spent a lot of time running away. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah and so i think uh, endurance resiliency um some of those because you have to start i had to start over a few a few times mm. you know um but i will say um i think it i think it made me who i am today because i had to go through quite a few different um, things in life where resiliency had to be like my watchword. Yeah. So yeah. while I would not recommend going to four different high schools, um, 
here we're talking today about it. I'm, I'm thankful that I yeah, had that experience. Yeah. So. Well, 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 was the times that, so like when you go from one to the other to the other, was the things that, because obviously at that, uh, that age, you don't really, yeah, you, you know everything kind of thing, or you think you know everything. And, but it, it's, if I was to go back to that age, I would think I'm taking lessons. I would think I'm being clever, but probably if I look back, I wasn't. So when you were in your first high school and you, and you obviously learned, learned some shit, you, you, you see what kind of happens. Did you take lessons into each one or did you kind of just keep repeating the same thing? Did you keep repeating the same formula when you, when you started in your high school? Um, I don't think as much. I was uh, like, when you first start out, out in high school, um, like you said, I, it's, you don't know what to think, you know, you look nervous. Um, but I think I found my niche, honestly, in um, athletics for me. Now, I was, don't get me wrong, I was, I was, I was, I was a pretty smart guy. Um, I took four years of architectural drafting and just because I was good at it, I didn't even know what, I, I mean, I don't do anything with it today, but I did really, really well with that. Um, so I had, I, I had really decent grades, yeah. but I didn't feel, I didn't feel really a part of what was going on until I got in, so I started getting involved in different athletics, yeah. particularly like track and field and cross country. So, yeah. That's the, is, is it the same perception as where you get over here with athletics and with sports in, in American schools that like, if you do sports, you are, you were a popular kid. Um, if you were good at it, you were a popular kid. <laughs> <All> right, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, if you're if you were if you were good at a particular sport, you could gain a little bit of a following and a little bit more respect because of it. Um, um, I wasn't a footballer, like not 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 soccer like you all, but I mean I, like American football. American football. Um, I didn't have the uh, the physique, or um, I couldn't do football, just like too little. <laughs> so, but for me, it was track and field and cross country. Um, that I did for all four years. And that right there gave me a little bit of notoriety in high school. It was, so it made high school really fun when I started getting a, getting a part of that, so. Uh, and so then, yeah, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. So, so from there, so obviously you've been through high school and what have you, you, you went to four different high schools. What happened yeah. after that? What was, what was your, your first job, your first move, or where did so, that lead you? If you may, I might have missed something that I think might be really important since yeah. we're talking about like maybe resiliency and mental and physical um, endurance. Um, in my last year of high school, right, um, we lived, let me give you some context. We lived about, me and my brother lived about 40 miles from the high school that we would attend in our last year. Right? And that had a lot to do with we were moving from house to house in the in the the year before my last year, and then we ended up moving back to the west side of, or moving to the west side of Chicago, but not wanting to separate from the high school yeah. because it was going to be our last year. So we made a decision rather than try to go to the local high school where we would have to try to meet new friends, 
we would stay and we would travel 40 miles in one direction every day. Man. We took, we took a, a train, we took a train and two buses pretty much every day for that, for that entire year to get to school. But what a blessing, man. I'll tell you what, I, did, I never did better on track and field than that last year. And I think it's because we really wanted to finish strong. I mean, we went to a very, uh, we, we call it going down state or a um, kind of a, I don't know what you all would call it, but it's a high achievement in track and field to be able to go down state um, as a junior or senior. A seniors your last year so um and my grades were still really well um and so with all that traveling um and make making that decision and doing all that traveling i still managed to keep my grades where they needed to be graduated on time did really well in track and field i could have continued it on in college but i didn't um but very pleased about the outcome of that because it could have went another way yeah and so there you go so moving forward you asked me about my first job yeah uh it would be in it would be in the military um i'm telling you before i made that decision though i had i had a couple of choices um i could have chose to sell drugs right which was definitely an option for me i could have yeah. chose to absolutely do that i can still remember the opportunity that was presented to me, as stupid as that would have been, I was given that option yeah. because I told you I grew up in, like there was a socioeconomic deprivation where I grew up. And so the, the luring of doing something like that and thinking that it wouldn't impact me in a negative way, um, well, it kind of resonated with me a little bit, but obviously I chose a different path, thankfully, and that was the uh, the United States military. Mm -hmm. in the Army. So, so you you chose that, did you, Rick? Is because I, I don't know how it works. Like, do you just decide you decided to go in, right? Yeah, actually, I decided, Phil, to uh, I, honestly, when I made the decision that day, to I was walking past the recruiter station, um, had a lot going on in my mind, like figuring out, like after high school, how could I support, help support my mother, mm -hmm. um, who supported us all these years, and so. I was just walking past the recruiter station. I like, I really think, honestly, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a God-fearing man. So I kind of think it was chose for me. Um, I walked in there and I said, hey, what could I do? And um, I talked to a recruiter and then uh, the recruiter essentially uh, started putting me on a path, you know. Mm. Well, you clearly did a right on that path, mate, because I've heard that you flew Black Hawks and then you became a commander of Black Hawks. And I find that, a pretty cool thing to have done <laughs> well man i tell you what uh it was it was phenomenal um that was the that was the latter half of my career though yeah i've the skipped first... haven't i i know i'm sure i've <laughs> skipped mate sorry for yeah i've just no, got this okay. I'm, I'm so excited that you're a black hawk pilot i wanted to oh. get there but let's go back rain me in a bit lee rain me in <laughs> no that's okay man sorry, i wish man. Uh, i wish i had it on my screen I, I wish i could show you one of the one of the the Blackhawks that I had the uh, the opportunity to fly. So oh, there's different variations. So have to send send us the picture. Send send us I'll send it to you. Yeah. Like after this, after this, we're, we're going to attach it to the podcast. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I, we'll man, talk yeah. about. We'll talk about. <laughs> I got to make sure I'm clear to send that photo. But uh, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, yeah, don't get in trouble. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> I'm out of the military, but I signed a 30-year non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> Put it like this. I'm, I'll send you something that might already be out there on social yeah. media. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's the variant. Of yeah, man, yeah, cool. Yeah, sorry, mate. Let's go go back then. So you're in the military. Yeah, tell us, tell us, tell us how that went. And, and yeah, so yeah, man, what an amazing career. So I um, and I didn't know I was doing this, but I was tracking myself down something uh, that is called a Mustang in in the military. And so a Mustang is a title that's given to an individual who has been an enlisted soldier, okay, a warrant officer and a commissioned officer. Um, and in the, in, at the front side of this, I didn't set out to do that. I set out to do, so we had this, we, you know, we had this, these advertisements um, and the advertisement back in the eighties was be all you can be. That was the commercial advertisement from the United States Army. And they show this thing on TV where these guys are running in formation and they got these short t-shirts on and they're, they got big old guns. I told you I was front 40. I didn't have big guns, but, <laughs> but man, they did an excellent job of advertising that a person, if they join, could be all they could be. So when I first joined, <laughs> I, I became a, a medic, <laughs> right? Um, but not like the traditional medic. Um, so I did, uh, like for the first 10 years, I did three different jobs in the medical field for the United States Army. Anywhere from being a health inspector to testing water, um, uh, inspecting facilities for hygienic type things. I mean, it was, it was kind of fun, but I knew that it was like a stepping stone. I'm like, okay, how long am I gonna do this for? Um, and then I was a field medic for a little while. Um, and I did uh, a couple other things on the medical side. Like uh, I became a licensed practical nurse uh, in the state of Texas. But then I was working in the army with my license. So I did that. Um, and then after that, I had enough. I'm like, it came to a point, I was like, man, it's got to be a little bit something else because I'm feeling like I'm not really actualizing where, where, like where I need to be, yeah. you know? Um, and so then I would, um, I, I decided to uh, walk into my command sergeant major's office um, through the first sergeant, of course, and uh, asked him, could I become a drill sergeant? You know, asked them what they endorsed me being a drill sergeant, United States Army drill sergeant. Um, and because of my background, um, Prior to me asking that, I had won a couple of high-level competitions like Soldier of the Month, Soldier of the Quarter, Soldier of the Year, NCO of the Non-Commissioned Officer of the Month, not of the Year, sorry. Um, I didn't win that one. But so, <laughs> so I, I walk into Command Sergeant Major's office um, and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll endorse you to do that, right? And then I went to uh, the United States Drill Sergeant School and we only had three at the time. It was in Fort Leonard, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. Uh, I did extremely well at the school. Matter of fact, I graduated, I graduated number two in my class. Um, and then they sent me to 
the advanced individual training unit to train soldiers for two years. Um, and that would have been 1998 to 2000. Uh, absolutely loved every minute of it. Nick absolutely hated every second of it. Because, <laughs> because I, left, I left in the morning at 4.30 and I sometimes didn't come back home till 10. And that pretty much happened all the time with the exception of maybe one day off. Mm. So that's why you only do it for two years. But I trained soldiers. Um, I was a master fitness trainer during that time. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty high level school for the military to go in. I mean, I've trained a lot of soldiers in fitness mm. um, at that, you know, during my career. Just a quick one on that, Rick. Did, did you, did, I presume you had to keep a massively high level of fitness yourself while, whilst doing that, right? Because I sometimes see, I watch pro, TV programs and the, the guys, that, the soldiers that are training, they're pretty hardcore. But the, 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 the trainers yeah. always have to be one step ahead of the soldiers, surely, right? So there's two type, Phil, there's, there's, there's two schools of thought there, right? Because I was also older than the soldiers that I was training, right? So, yes, there were times where I definitely had to, um, like, put in some extra hours, right? But at the end of the day, right? Like I might be 10 years older than some of these guys. So I also had to be um, a little smarter. Than I was going to say that. I was going to say, was it, yeah, was it more, more like fit in your head, man? Yeah. Than, than, than like, necessarily the physical side of it. I can remember, man, on, on a couple of instances, depending on the cycle that we had at the time, we had some guys that are coming straight from basic. And now, now I've already been, a drill sergeant for six months and I'm training them at the advanced individual side and we go out for PT and these guys is just an engine, right? Mm -hmm. But they never knew what was coming. So I knew how to keep the tempo. I knew how to pull over the whole formation, put them in the grass while I could get some rest, yeah. <laughs> right? work them out extra hard and keep going afterwards, you know, yeah. so everybody wins. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be smarter too. Too right, mate. Too right. What well, well, what sort of training would you put them through? Like, what can you can you talk about that stuff? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. No, this is yeah. all like this is a continuation. So this is a continuation of basic basic training. Um, I was a I was not a drill sergeant in basic training. Um, they put me at the advanced individual training. So. Most of the training was geared around fitness and about, and their advanced individual training, their, their, um, their technical expertise, right? And setting the conditions for them to do well in their advanced individual training. So it was very much more on the, the technical side, but we certainly had uh, what we call phase four and five, a continuation of um, physical training. And then, uh, all the marksmanship was done before they got to me. So, mm. so How, really, it was it was really kind of transitioning them out of the basic mentality into being a, a regular soldier. Yeah. Mm. How how hard is it, Rick, mentally for those recruits, and maybe for you when you were coming up through the ranks, to to sort of stay on point? Like, do you get broken? Do you know, like obviously we see programs over here where these soldiers are just broken down massively especially in the SAS and the special special forces right yeah. um how hard is it 
and maybe was it for you coming up through the ranks to keep your head on point? Um, like looking back, um, you know, you're going through so much. There's still a lot of hormonal changes if you enter into mm. the military when you're when you're young, and you still you really just like asking you don't know your ass from your elbows really. Yeah, yeah. You're still kind of learning more about yourself, and so it is a huge culture shock. When I when I came in, um, I told you I grew up in Chicago. Chicago is very much a segregated city. Um, you got Italians over here. Africans over here, Puerto Ricans over here. I'm half Puerto Rican, half African, if you will. I don't, I'm a hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. um, and so you bring some of that mentality into the military, and then the, the, the drill sergeants have to break you. They really got to break that mentality. Now, because you come in with someone, especially for, from the city, you come in with that segregated mentality. And, but that's not going to help. In the military you can't you can't yeah. be that way mm. so it took a while it took a little while for me and it took a couple of hard sessions with some drill sergeants and maybe some other uh recruits to realize that hey we truly are in this together and and every in america it seems like every military member that comes in goes through a bit of that right so mm. so just something to consider yeah it was it was a challenge but you either sink or swim, you know. That's it, yeah. 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 What was like the, is, is the a big success, is there a big dropout rate, for a better question? Is there a big dropout rate in, in, inside the, the military and stuff? Um, I think within the first four years, Lee, there is. Because within that first four years, um, people come in for various reasons, um, whether... Uh, because they're advertised, hey, come in and we'll pay for your school, you know, uh, or we'll, we'll, we'll give you this, or we'll give you that. And so people come in and they, if they achieve that, then, um, then they might just exit after the, f the first four years. Uh, and the Army is very, I mean, not just the Army, but the military is very good at forecasting that type of stuff, though. They already, they already have the numbers, hence the recruiters already know what their assignments are because within those first four years we know it's going to be a huge turnover so ah. nice. there we so, go so from drill so yeah from drill sergeant where where did you go from there so um that's when things started to get really exciting like drill sergeant was really exciting for me um but right after drill sergeant or near the end of that um the command sergeant major at that location really wanted me to stay there for another two years to be a, what they call a small group leader to train at the professional non-commissioned officers academy. Because I did really well as a drill sergeant. So they're like, hey, we, we'd love for you to. And had I taken that route, I someday probably would have been a command sergeant major. Um, but, or command sergeant's major, sorry. But that really wasn't the route. I told you, I came in with a kind of be all you can be. And I kind of saw that as a fantastic for some people, but I hadn't done everything that I thought I needed to do. Yeah. Um, so I thought I was going back after drill sergeant, I thought I was going back to uh, Madigan Army Medical Center because even though I was a drill sergeant, I was still medical at the time. I just, drill sergeant is kind of like, you just take a hiatus and go do that. Yeah. And you go back to your medical profession. 
And so long story short, um, I'm, I'm inside of a briefing in preparation to go back to my last duty assignment, which I'm not really happy about because you don't, you don't go backwards. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I thought they were sending me backwards. So I'm like, okay. So anyway, I'm sitting there and I look on the document that shows my assignment and it shows the location but the particular job that they wanted me to do, I was not qualified for at the time. So I'm like, hey, there must be a problem here. So we realized that it was a problem. They sent me across the hall. Um, the reason why they did that is because there was a guy in the same briefing and he was talking about him going to warrant officer. I was like, man, where, like, who's sending you to warrant officer school? And so, <laughs> He's telling me what he's doing. Now, most warrant officers have already had a number of years in the military, okay? Um, there's only one type of warrant officer that you could really come in off the street, and if you qualify, you could be a warrant officer. So anyway, I go across the hall, and uh, I talk to the, uh, the personnel guy and says, hey, what does it take to be a warrant officer? They sent me over here to ask you some questions. And so he pulls out at this time. There was no computer, so he pulls out this big old fat book a different warrant officer jobs. He said, well, let's sit down. So, so sitting down, at this time I'm a staff sergeant. So I went from private to staff sergeant, which is an E6. So he said, hey, sergeant, let's see. So he's, he's going through, he's like, well, can you do this? Well, can you do that? I'm like, no, no, no. And we're going down the list. And then like these high, these very technical, say again. You were glad it was a big book. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, cause I'm like, we're getting near the end of here. like. I, I don't have any qualifications to do this as a warrant officer. And then he flips over to near the end of the page. He's like, hey, there's, there's something here called rotary wing. He didn't really know. Rotary wing pilot. I'm like, really? What is that? Right? <laughs> so we started looking down the list and he's like, he's like, oh, I think that's helicopters. <laughs> I was like, hey, what's the qualifications for that? He's like, well, breathing. Um, you got to take this test. and here's the reason why is because the army could pretty much take a pilot and if they can pass the uh, basic training which i had already done advanced individual training and if they can pass the army flight aptitude selection tests um they stand a really good shot if you pass Mm. the physical as well so you don't need to have all this experience in other technical mos's because they're going to teach you how to fly a helicopter right I'm like, oh my goodness, if they let me do that, I will absolutely, I'm like, Lord, I will absolutely do that if they let me do that. <laughs> so I'm telling you, man, within two months, um, and this is how motivated I was, and I found out that I had the opportunity to do that. Within two months, I put in the work of, I took myself through all, I bought one of these books from the library where you can practice the tests. And I practiced the test for a month, um, made sure my physical stuff was straight. I did my physical exam, which is a task in and of itself. And then I submitted the application. And within two months, I got selected. Something that was almost unheard of, but I think it was time. Um, so yeah, I got selected. And then in 2000, right after drill sergeant, I reported to Fort Rucker, Alabama for the warrant officer program for six weeks and then flight school to follow afterwards, so. So what, what, what's a warrant officer? Just say, what, what does that so, mean? You know God, G-O-D? 
Yeah. Well, Warren also is just shy of God. <laughs> and look, at least, at least by the army standards, anyway. As yeah. a young troop man, as a young troop, when I saw a warrant officer, um, like nobody really, nobody really engaged with the warrant officers, but nobody also messed with the warrant officers, yeah. because majority of warrant officers, they, 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 their role is. So here's the difference between a warrant officer and a commission officer. A warrant officer is a technical expert in their field. So they're an officer that has a lot of technical expertise and they're single track. Yeah. So I was single track for aviation. You had single track for a lot of other different warrant officer, warrant officer career fields. But that means that they would have had to have a lot of experience in their technical expertise, except for aviation officer, aviation warrant officer, because they can pretty much teach that person how to fly. Mm. Yeah. They don't really, they teach you all your technical expertise. But when you see a warrant officer, you don't know whether they're aviation or you don't know who they are. They're just yeah. another warrant officer. So they gained a lot of notoriety and respect. So I thought, man, I'm just like, I can't believe that they're letting me go to the warrant <laughs> officer program. Man, it was the worst, it was the worst six weeks of my military training, right? It was the one of the hardest schools I had ever went to at the time, at the time. Mm. Um, yeah, man. It was <laughs> but you, but you it, smashed it. Do you think the reason, because you said that you, you smashed it, right? You did, you did it real quick. You passed real quick, right? Yeah. Is that, how important was it? Or do you think that you did so well because it was something that you just, you like, this is cool. You know, it was something you wanted to do and, and that then drove you on. Because we were talking to your, your Mrs. Nick last week was saying that when she started doing, um, you know, the stuff that she really wanted to be doing, the photography and that, and things just went really, really quickly, you know? Yes. Well, so I should have qualified. Warren also was the hardest physically physically and mentally enduring school that I had went to up to that point, right? Mm -hmm. The most technical thing I would have went through and the most humbling experience I had ever, I had ever gone was flight school because I was a lot older. I was 29 years old, and the average pilots are from, from 18 to 25. I had to get a waiver, but because of my good record, they gave me a waiver to go into the program. I was the last person in my class to learn how to hover an aircraft, right? And because the, to be able to hover a helicopter, you have to use your arms and your legs. That's not easy, is it? Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, I know a part of helicopter pilot, and he's, he's, I can't even understand how you coordinate all limbs one hand does one thing, this hand does the other thing, and each yeah. foot does something different, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, pedal control. Oof. Um, but I had a huge advantage, and that's that I had a memory. Man, I had a memory. I don't know how elephants, they say elephant, memory like an elephant. I don't know how an elephant <laughs> remembers, but I had a really strong memory. So in that way, I very much excelled in flight school um, because there was a lot of requirements for memorization pre-flight checklist, stuff you had to know from memory. So what I ended up having to do on the technical side, though, is instead of being off, I would have to go to the simulator um, and put additional hours on myself. This is something I decided to do. Mm. It was even to the point that one of my portions of training was so challenging, it was called instruments, where you can only fly the helicopter from looking you take off and you have to transition your eyes into the, 
the helicopter for the entire time until you were on short final again, right? Mm -hmm. It's called instruments, so you learn how to fly in the clouds. They only gave you 30 hours. I had to put 30 additional hours on myself. I also had to change my instructor pilot. I couldn't understand him. The guy was from South Alabama. <laughs> and I just could not understand him, man. And they hated me for doing it. But do you know what? I graduated number four in my class. That's a year, almost a year and a half of training. So mm -hmm. I graduated pretty much at the top of my class and I got a chance to choose Blackhawks, right? But I knew what I needed. Whereas, because I, like I told you, they gave me an age waiver. So I'm a little bit more mature mm -hmm. than a lot, age-wise, than a lot of my peers. Uh, and I was also the leader of that class. So um, I had to do well for a lot of reasons. I could not fail. Here's another reason I had to do well, man, or gentlemen. This is the reality of it. Um, I was in South Alabama. And I'm a young black man in South Alabama. Um, in the military, and don't get me wrong, I love Fort Rucker, Alabama, but there's some challenges just associated with, um, with skin color and races. I mean, the expectation was I, I could not fail. If I failed, it would not be because I didn't try. That's why I had to put those additional hours on myself um, because I felt like I had a reputation to uphold for my class. Mm. It was a mix of people right? And then a reputation to uphold for being um, a black man yeah. in the South um, because there's all these stereotypes of, hey, you know, not only can you, sw can you not swim, which is actually true. I, I can swim, <laughs> but I can't swim with gear on, okay? So I fit the, I fit the stereotype there. <laughs> but you're also scared of heights, you know? And so I'm like, well, I'm just not going to fit all the stereotypes. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. a quitter. So anyway, um, I did really, really well during flight school, man. But that's because I put in a lot of work. And you know what? Nick rarely saw me during that time. So it took a little bit of a toll on our relationship, too. It was mm -hmm. tough. But it was, looking back, it was also worth it. You know, not to, not to put a strain on our relationship, but just you know, to, to press on and, and to finish it because, hey, I got kids now and I'm, I'm, it's about a legacy, you mm. know, quitting, so. And also you got to uh, fly some pretty badass helicopters. <laughs> so man, my first, uh, my first helicopter was what we call a UH-60 Lima, which is a true, true transport helicopter. But I flew, um, I never flew medical, I flew all tactical. So I flew for the 1st Infantry Division, uh, duty first is the model of that, and they truly mean it. Like, duty, yeah. I, my first assignment was in in uh, Germany. I would uh, drop Nick and the kids off in Germany, and I spent over half that tour deployed to mm. different locations. And I got a chance to fly that UH-60 all over the place, including Southeast Asia, um, uh, under some tactical conditions. And um, dude, by the grace of God, I'm like sitting here because I'm telling you, I got some. I got some thought processes of being in some hairy situations with well, that yeah. particular helicopter. And all I could do with that particular helicopter is evade and maneuver because it didn't have the armament that some of the, that some of the, yeah, the no guns. Yeah. yeah. Are you, it are has you, some guns, but 60s. 
Okay, yeah. Oh, man, it sounds so... When you, when you talk, mate, I, this is going to sound weird, but with your accent as well, you just sound so cool. You sound like I'm watching a, <laughs> watching a movie. I'm watching Black Hawk Down, isn't it? <laughs> but that... So, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about these hairy move, uh, moments that you have, mate. Are you allowed to uh, sort of elaborate on... Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. What, ...what you got up to in that, in that chopper? Yeah, I sure can, man. Um, so, when... Uh, and flying in the Baltic, right? Um, obviously, there have been a lot of problems there before. I mean, British Army was there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the biggest, the biggest challenge associated with flying in that particular area was the weather, because it's so mountainous, and you just don't know when the weather is going to turn very poor, and so. Kosovo obviously sat in between it. Kosovo was that, 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 that piece in the middle of a storm because you got Serbia, you got all these other places that are surrounding. Here's Kosovo. And so we were out of Kosovo. The other, so weather and then potentially landing on a mine that you didn't know, even though we did a really good job of clearing the LZs because I'm here to talk about it. Um, there were a couple occasions, man. I remember this one one occasion where we took off, and it was just single ship, one aircraft for this one. We were taking off to do a resupply mission in the mountains, um, and it was getting kind of dark. Um, and weather, we didn't know if weather was coming in or not. We didn't know because uh, uh, it was hard to for for the for the Air Force to forecast the weather. So that night it got dark. We had to uh, we had to take off with goggles. Um, and when, when you look under goggles, I don't know if you've ever looked under goggles before, but everything is a tinge of green, and that's by design. But there's different shadings of green to let you know what you're looking at, right, or what you're not looking at. Hence, if there's a body of water and you're looking at that through the goggles, it's going to be a dark area. And you reference that on the map, you're like, oh, that's water. Now, you would have referenced the map before you took off. But the reality is is you may see things in the air a little bit differently. So <laughs> we had to travel um, up this mountain. And so we had to kind of go up the crest of this mountain. And I'm on the controls. And we're calling to, we're calling to the location that we're going to resupply them with some, with some food to. And my, my, pilot, my pilot was saying, hey, it's... it's I don't know if we're going to make it. We had slowed back down to 60 knots, which is really slow. Then we slowed down to 40 knots. And we're starting to climb, and I'm on the controls. And we're about, I'm not kidding, maybe less than a half, maybe less than a mile away from landing. And we couldn't see. At that point, I couldn't see anything but a white haze of green. I'm like, so... Just so, now you're trying to do some things, because like, we're going up a mountain now. We're not real close to the mountain where I couldn't maneuver around, right? But we are moving, so we're moving up. There's a big haze of green. Now, you're t- trained to do one of two things. You're trained to do what we call inadvertent IMC, which is you climb up to a certain altitude, you squawk an emergency frequency, you contact ATC, and then they give you radar vectors to safety but you gotta climb up to a safe altitude. The safe altitude was 10,000 feet. (laughs) (laughs) We were only at 2,000 feet. Oh my God. So I had another option, 
which I'm glad I chose that option, which is I immediately, I immediately bank right, right, to go back the way I came. But you gotta be careful because now when you bank right, and because right now I told you I'm in the clouds now, so I have to be looking at the instruments. I can no longer be looking outside and at the instruments. That's how you crash. So when I made a commitment, I told the guy, since I'm inside, I turn right, I turn back around 180 degrees because I remember the azimuth that we were on, right? And as I start flying, because I knew that's low ground, I could see lights. And when I saw those lights, we felt good. We never made it to that drop off. We went back <laughs> to Kosovo <laughs> and took the crap out of our pants. <laughs> we were good to go. But I'll never forget, man, like almost losing. But we were highly trained to fly in the clouds or to, um, to do the right procedures in, event, in, in the event that we were in the clouds inadvertently. Mm. So yeah. I live so, to tell about it. But when you said like, so if there's two pilots inside of the helicopter, is two people flying it or is it just one at any one time? Yeah, one at any one time. That's Two people flying a helicopter is a fight, right? <laughs> I want to go that way. Well, I want to go that way. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you right now, yeah. if, it's, if it's between me or somebody else and I'm on the controls, like, I'm going to win. I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, I'm going home today to see mama. Yeah. We ain't having a fight. <laughs> did, you, did you ever um, take any fire? Yeah, quite any... a bit, man. Uh, yeah. Quite a bit. That must be. Hey, deliver some too. <laughs> so, well, not with that particular air, aircraft as much. We were, um, there was a little bit in Kosovo. Um, but remember, they didn't, like the folks over there, um, like they couldn't see us at all anyway. They would see, they would hear an aircraft. But by the time you hear an aircraft, the aircraft's already in another position um, mm. in the air, you know. So unless you really know what you're doing. Um, so I would see sometimes tracer, sometimes tracer rounds out there. Mm. Um, now, that must be scary seeing all those tracers flying past and thinking, oh, well, it, so not there, not there. I will tell you not because, like I said, a lot of them was if they were doing that, they were doing that based off of what they heard and not necessarily what they saw a lot of times. Mm. Yeah. Because the only time I experienced that over there would be at nighttime. Got a little bit different in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sorry. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, it was a little bit different there. Actually, it was a lot different. Um, anyway, I would have spent uh, a fair amount of time in, in Kosovo, and then I'd go back to Germany. And then we would, um, how can I say this? Um, I'm still with the 1st Infantry Division, and we would end up going to, um, a year after we got back, we'd end up going to uh, Iraq. Mm. Um, going to, uh, we would, um, oh, I can't, he wouldn't go straight into Iraq. I just can't remember exactly where, where for the life of me right now, but we would launch from another location. Oh, duh, Kuwait. We would launch from Kuwait. Like most, most folks in the military, you all's military included, would launch from mm. Kuwait into Iraq. Um, wow. and so I'm still with the first ID, the first long trip. I ever had was uh, I'm going up north north of um, um, is it Basra, 
I think it's North. No, no, not Bosworth. Sorry. Um, I'm going up to Tikrit. That's in a helicopter. Uh, when we launched from Kuwait to go into Iraq, um, we would fly where the airports kind of told us to fly. Um, but we would fly for about six hours. With, that meant one fuel stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, dude, I'm telling you what, I had never seen – I even today, I don't think I've ever seen that type of devastation in terms of infrastructure. But what are what I'll just say what um, multinational um, multinational um, organizations or militaries um, I'll say accomplished did or accomplished. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Um, but it was an eye opener, man. And they said we. Yeah, this says this is not Kosovo, and this is not anything that we, and there's not anything we had we had encountered before, and the people are not happy to see us, mm. right? So you're talking about having your A game on the whole time. Um, so the insurgency had been very instrumental at knocking down helicopters prior to us arriving, um, and that had to do with just uh, tactics, I think so many of us had used before when we were in the States doing training or whatever. And the tactics just didn't apply to that type of environment. Um, there, were, there were times when we had to cross um, 100 foot tension lines, which put you really, like, just made you vulnerable, you know? Mm. So especially if you were, they had really got into attacking the last helicopter. Right, so they would let other helicopters pass over these locations, um, and then they would come out with either with with an RPG or small arms and try to attack that Lohasa. They were very effective prior to us getting there, because um, we weren't the first unit there. There was another unit. There was another unit that were, we were we were what we call relieving in place, and so by the time we got there we had already learned that we needed to do something entirely different in terms of evasive procedures. Um, we flew very low, um, very fast over, um, over terrain, over um, urban terrain. We mm-hmm. flew very low and very fast over urban terrain um, because it keeps the signature of where you are down to a minimum until you get on short final. When you get on short final the land and all bets were off, you know? Mm. So that's where we encountered a lot of the um, either small, arm, small arms fire or trying to, um, trying to hit us with an RPG. And look, I can remember, look, this is how, this is how hairy this, I can, I can remember almost getting hit by our own guys um, because you have, to call, you have to call through sectors right, when you're flying, and I mean, we control the ground and the air, but you have to call through sectors because you don't know what, you don't know what else is out there, and I can remember one day uh, in Tikrit, we were headed back to one of the Tikrit palaces where we uh, usually land those aircraft, and we, I called through, like, I called through this spot, but for whatever reason, the message did not get down to the unit that was doing some artillery, they weren't shooting at us, they were doing some artillery rounds, our side. And may I tell you what, one, one round, we're in this sector, and I'm thinking that we're clear, and one round, this, it landed right near the back of our, my, tail, my, my tail, 
and it shook the aircraft, man. So I thought, what am I thinking? I'm thinking, oh man, we're under fire, right? And so I'm calling them as I'm evading and I'm calling the other two aircraft and say, hey, I think I just, cause I was number three. I was like, I'm, <laughs> but I wasn't hit. Uh, I, I thought I was hitting, I wasn't hit. But for that, for those, for those 10 seconds, man, I thought we had been hit, you know? I go to land, we land, I, I send a sit rep up only to find out that it was our own guys, accidentally. Accidentally, and that's, and that's because they didn't get the message. Mm. They didn't get the message, you know? Mm. So mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Blimey, that must have been very, very hairy, man. That must have been, did you get, like, you're obviously a cool guy, Rick, and I know I'm sure being, you know, all the training you've done has taught you to just keep a hold of your head in these situations, but we're all humans, right? You must have been, yeah. you know, shit in your pants, for want of a better word, before you went on those missions, no? Well, um, let me see, man. There's a yes and a no. I think there's a, I think there's a switch that happens, man, when you're in that environment for any length of time. Because if you train well and you revert back to that training, you got a really good chance of getting through that. Um, I almost had to, not almost had, I really had to like disconnect from even things that were happening at home with Nick and the boys because I wanted to see them again. And so if, if you don't be mission-minded when you are in the middle of these things, these situations, um, you're going to wish you had at some point, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have been conditioned in my training to revert to, you know, I'm a man of faith. I, I tend to believe that when it's my time, it's my time. Um, but we ain't going to rush it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to revert to my training. And, um, and so it was afterwards, man, that I would think, wow, that was a near death experience. Again. Oh yeah. I was going <laughs> to say, did you ever get out of the helicopter, helicopter and just go, I've yes. made it. Yes. Mm. Um, and it would be, and so just to fast forward a little bit, um, after the first infantry division, I went to the officer. I got, I selected for what's called officer candidate school. Um, and so that's at Fort Benning, Georgia. It's always been at Fort Benning, Georgia. It's always going to be there. Um, but I always wanted to like command. But at the time when I was a young soldier, I didn't know what I wanted to command. I just like, well, I just, you know, I just love taking care of people. So I did that as an enlisted member, did real good at that. Even as a warrant officer, I wasn't really asked to take care of people, but I did my best in taking care of my crew that I flew with, and they took care of me. Matter of fact, some of them were instrumental in making sure we all made it back alive. Mm. Um, but um, I always wanted to kind of command, you know? And so in order to do that, I knew I had to go to, I had to become a commissioned officer. And so I selected for officer candidate school, and I would leave, and this was really hard. This was bittersweet. Because I would leave first ID while they were in Iraq. After about seven months, I would leave them because I had to report for school. Um, but the the sweet part about it, I was I was gonna see Nick and the boys a little bit earlier, you know, at least for at least for a couple of months before I went off to 
for Benning. So set them up here in Texas at the time. And then I went to Fort Benning and went through 14 and a half weeks of OCS, which it wasn't hard. It was just kind of like physically endurance, kind of like infantry, infantry school, um, infantry type tactics that they, that every officer that goes through that commission that starts to have to go through. So, but get this, I was the aviation guy there. Most, uh, most other folks were infantry. Um, and I would be the, the first one at that time to actually win the leadership recipient award in that, in that environment. Matter of fact, it was pretty upsetting to the command <laughs> because the command there were all infantry and their expectation is that, hey, it's gonna be an infantry officer mm, cool to thing. win this thing. And I didn't look at it that way. I just looked at it, hey, I'm gonna be the best I can be in this environment and we're gonna see how that shakes out, right? And so I would be number two in the class, but number one to receive the leadership recipient award. Um, and then from there, I went and I didn't go right to flying anymore. I actually went, they let me go from there back to Texas to finish my undergraduate, which is, that would be equivalent to my four year university, mm -hmm. right? Because I had been so much, I've been operational for so long that that battalion commander at OCS said, when I asked him, he says, no problem, Lieutenant. Yeah, I'll endorse your packet so that you can go and finish your undergraduate degree because I needed it to make captain. So and I was just a Lieutenant. So anyway, I would come back to Texas here and I, would, I wouldn't have much to do with the military for the next few years. We were here and I was at Concordia University and Nick was working at a job um, that she had just got a, a managing a, a managing a um, a gym, and I was just going to school. Matter of fact, they let me do something that at that time Concordia had never allowed anybody to do. I was taking the accelerated degree program. They knew I only had so many months before the military would call me back on active duty, so they had endorsed me to okay, yeah, we'll let you take, um, go through our accelerated degree program. But it was like one class, four hours a night, and you could finish that class relatively flat, fast and go to the next class. And I, I convinced them to let me take two. Um, and up to that point, they had never heard of that because most people in the accelerated degree program is a working class, a working person, where they work during the day mm. and then they go to school at night. And I'm like, well, look, I'm not working and I'm getting paid just to go to school. So let me go and I promise you I'll do well. Well, I did what I did better than I expected, man. I mean, <laughs> I had fun doing it, but I was on the national, I was on two national honor societies and I was on the dean list three out of four times. <laughs> I was like, the, the A student is hilarious, man. But it gave us a chance, Nick and I, a chance and the boys to reconnect. And like to reconnect out of a military setting to like be a part of a civilian setting. And we just like fell in love with this area. Mm. And so we wanted to stay, but at the end of that, the army was calling me back to active duty. Um, and they would call us, they would call us back to overseas. They would, they, you know, mm. and man, that was fantastic in one sense, but I certainly didn't want to do that. I want to be like, we're like, we're not far from Fort Hood. 
So we love this area so much, we just wanted to stay. But I think the good Lord was like, no, you can't stay yet. We're not, we're not done with you yet. We're not done with you here. So anyway, I don't know if Nick mentioned this, but we would have to go back on active duty. And it was right during the time where Mary, my mother-in-law, was uh, battling with cancer. You know, she's, and so <laughs> I wanted to go back. To, initially, I wanted to go to a flying unit. Uh, I was, when I was coming back on active duty, but um, the my uh, branch manager says, well, I just don't have anything for you right now, Lieutenant, for flying. And I said, well, look, can you get me back to Germany? If you can get me back to Germany, because I'm thinking at least Nick can go over to England and spend time with Mary, mm -hmm. you know, and it's relatively cheap. And if I go back to Germany, uh, at least she'll, she'll be able to go back over there. Uh, but she'll be with she'll be with mom, and man, what a I'm telling you, this is a rich blessing. I, even when I think about it now, I'm just like, for me, only God could have done this for me, um, because my branch manager says, "Hey, great news!" This is about three weeks later. Great news! I got you to Germany. I got you to Germany. He says, "However, okay, it's going to be a Ford assignment." you're gonna be assigned to a, a unit in Germany, but they have a detachment in England, you know? And I just, man, I tell you what, what a blessing. Cause while we were there, we got a chance to spend a lot of time with my mother-in-law. Mm. Nice. Sorry. Oh, good man. But look, it, was, it gets even better because, um, while we were there, we thought we were going to be there for three years. And it turns out that while we were there, we were only there for a year. And our cancer was in remission while we were there. So while I was there, though, I got a chance to spend a lot of time in Africa. And I was working with a special ops unit at that time. That's how I ended up in, in England. Um, that had been really my first exposure to special operations on the aviation side. Um, and so I started working with this unit. It wasn't a flying assignment, but it was to go and set the conditions for us to go and fly in certain locations. Um, and part of that was flying in um, different parts of Africa. Um, and so I was, actually I helped stand up um, the unit in England that would go back and forth to different locations in Africa um, because there's some things that are still going on today in Africa that keeps you all's military and my and our military very busy. Mm. Um, so while I was there, I was connected with my my battalion commander, which is my my, my high level commander, was. He had spent some time with the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. And uh, I just knew that about him, that he had spent some time with the unit. We had never really talked about it. Um, to be a part of that particular unit, there's a regular, a regular, rigorous assessment process, which is funny, you hear my story, it's hilarious. Um, but I just wanted to do a good job for the unit at the time. And so I did. I actually did something that had not been done in probably three years. Um, 
and really it was our fault as a military. We were supposed to be connecting with some host nations in Africa, and we hadn't done a good job of connecting with one of these host nations. Um, so they sent me as a lieutenant, but mind you, I'm a lieutenant with, at that time, 16 years old. It's a little bit different than the average lieutenant. They wouldn't send an average lieutenant. Um, they sent me to go and pitch a presentation to this particular host nation about doing some training together. They had something to gain and we had something to gain. Man, on the surface, the day I went and pitched it, it just, it appeared to be a total flop, right? I mean, it's like, and then I came back and the unit was like, well, yeah, we, we knew it'd be a total flop. They, they, in other words, they, they were like, we sent this lieutenant, we haven't done anything with this unit, with, these, with this host nation in three years. Why would it be, why would we succeed by just pitching this? Why would this work? So I was really kind of frustrated because I, I, I felt like I was a little bit used mm. just to go down there and save face, right? <laughs> but anyway, I'm gonna tell you what I do. That's what I do. I, I get back and I kept communicating with what we call the defense attache which is uh, one of our folks that are in that country. We kept communicating and kept communicating. And honestly, I kept praying about this thing because I, I just didn't want to let it go. Like, I just don't think that we should just like give up on this. And so it would be that I would send them, I would send that host nation uh, presentations again. I was like, hey, this is what we'd like to do. And hopefully you guys want to do it with us. And, and so the defense attache says, hey, Rick, come back down here. Um, the leadership wants to hear from, from, from us again. So come back down and bring the pitch. So I would go back down. Now, I've been there about five times. This has been my sixth time. <laughs> so <laughs> there's some timeline in there. I just got to keep it a little general for yeah, yeah. before mm -hmm. we're talking. But um, this has been my fifth time, I think, back down there. And this time when I went down there, they took – me to a different location um, and I wasn't talking to higher ups I was talking to like a unit and I was like well, this is kind of strange I didn't know I'd be pitching this to a unit and when I walked into the room there was somebody from our special forces that was there um, there was all their country folks on the other side um, there's some other people in the room and it got to me to pitch this presentation again I'm like well I'm saying okay well and look, I have to talk to an interpreter, somebody who can speak French. So they actually sent the captain from the Air Force with me. I'm a lieutenant, but believe you me, they're like, they're listening to me. He's pitching for, he's pitching the presentation just in the language that they can understand, right? Well, he's pitching in French, right? Mm. So anyway, he's pitching it so you can probably, if you know anything about geographics, you know, well, he, Rick was probably over here. But anyway, um, then there's all this cackling going on. Not just French, but their language too. It's like, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> so the, uh, the major that was sitting on the other side of the host nation's table says, hey, listen, we've already heard this presentation like a couple of times. Like, we're here to do this. We want, we want to do this with you. And all they had, right, was my presentation. They didn't have the special forces guy that was from our unit. So we quickly realized that they were really here to see me, this lowly lieutenant, <laughs> not this CW4, this, C, this chief warrant officer, not this major, not this captain. They were here to hear me, right? 
because I'm speaking on behalf of a higher command, right? Mm. <laughs> and when we found that out, we quickly changed it into a planning conference and we would do something with that country, uh, a training experience with that country that we hadn't had an opportunity to do in three years. And it's all because I, I just, I, I decided to stay the course. I believed mm. in what I think the spirit of God was telling me. And then I stayed the course in. And so that right there really put me in good graces with that Colonel I was telling you about that was with the 160th. And so he was asking me, what would I like to do for my career? What would I like to do for the rest of my career? I already been 16 years. And I said, hey, sir, I really would like the opportunity to just go assess for the 160th. He's like, you need to do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> He's like, you need to do that. And just to get the privilege of assessing for that unit, was even enough for me just to just to get the opportunity to assess not i hadn't flown when i assessed for the 160th so i left let me back up here i assessed while i was in england right i got accepted and then we left and right about a year of being in england it was supposed to be a three-year tour but because of the priority of that uh the 160th that their priority is when we assess you we need you they pulled me, the 160 basically pulled me out of, out of England early. So we need you to come here, right? So <laughs> my assessment, you know, I had no acclimatization. I was in England. The assessment, this is common knowledge. The assessment, there's a swimming, there's a swimming portion of the assessment test. Um, there's a physical fitness portion of the test. Uh, for me, there's a flying portion for the test. The test is a week long. Right. And I knew that I was going to assess. So um, I'm in England. I'm trying to go to, I forget where, I don't know, you guys know where Mildenhall is. Mm. Uh, RF Mildenhall, do you know where? Barry I've St. heard Edmonds? of it. Yeah. Barry St. Yeah. Edmonds. That's it. Yeah, I know. So anyway, um, there were really no pools there for us. So I had to like train. I told you I'm not a really strong swimmer. Um, but one thing I learned to do in England in preparation for my test with gear on minus the helmet was to float because, well, they wouldn't let me wear boots in their pool in Barry St. Edmonds, right? It wasn't a military <laughs> pool, right? So I just had to, uh, I was like, okay, but they let me wear a uniform. So I taught myself how to float. So you went in a normal public swimming pool in flight gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to get approval to do it. Um, when I first, when I first asked them, could I do it? Mm. They were really like, are you, are you mad? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not surprised. I think anyone would think the same. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I explained to them as much as I could. I said, look, I got this really big test and I need to be able to, I need to be able to see how it feels with, with gear on. So if mm. you'll let me wear my uniform and boots, they're like, no boots. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll take what I can get. So that first week, man, for the assessment, I was so happy to be there. Um, and they could have told me to do whatever, and I, I would have did it. I was back on. I was back at home. Um, American soil for me was. I mean, it's being at home, and then I was going through an assessment. And um, the most, the thing I remember mostly about the assessment was the swim portion, and the attitude is everything. 
because there was a guy there was a, there was a guy that could swim very well, but he never made it past he never made it past a swim. I unfortunately didn't do as well as what the rescue diver wanted me to do for the swim. So they told me to enter the pool. I entered the pool, and they told me to do a couple of strokes. I did a couple of strokes, and then what do you think I did? Went on my back and floated. <laughs> <laughs> and the rescue diver is like, hey, hey, sir, because he was a sergeant. Hey, sir, I'm telling you what to, but nobody cares what your rank is. And kind of nobody cares what your rank is in the special forces when you're assessing, right? <laughs> so, so anyway, um, they would like pull me out of the pool and give me some, they said, we're going to give you extra training. They're like, did you prepare for this, sir? I'm like, yeah, I sure did, Sergeant. I prepared for it as best I could. I told him what I did. Um, um, I, what, I, what I didn't tell him is that when I got to Fort Campbell, um, I actually jumped in the river and practiced floating in the river. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> but anyway, um, it would be to a point where I was in the water and the rescue divers, like, I entered the water the second time. I floated the second time, even after he told me to do something. And he says, hey, um, you're not doing anything I'm telling you to do. I said, hey, Sarge, I got you. I said, no problem. I said, but I tell you what, I'm not leaving this pool. I will not leave this pool, right? Because the one thing I knew about the, uh, about the 160 is, is you don't quit anything you do. The, the motto of the unit is nice stalkers don't quit. So I was like, you'll be pulling me out of this pool because I'm not moving. You know what? They left me in the pool and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. how long did you stay there for? Nah, it's maybe just a couple of more minutes, right? They yeah. walked away, right? And then, um, so then I went and got dressed and I reported to the place where I was supposed to report. I was like, hey, am I still, am I still assessing? And the guy was like, hey, sir, yeah, you're still assessing. If you, if you, if you weren't, you know by now. Just keep going. And so um, I would go through the full assessment. You know, you learn some things about yourself. Um, and then I learned after being in the unit that it's not about doing extremely well. We had some guys do extremely well, but they weren't the right fit because there was something about their character that needed to be developed before they could come to the 160th. And the 160th is an operational unit. I mean, there's certain things that they just, they don't have time to train you on. They don't have time to train you on character. Like, you can look up the model, like the model is that way. Like night stalkers don't quit. And anytime you want to quit, you don't have to be there anymore. Mm. Yeah. We spent three years. I spent three there, three years operational with, with the 160th and did quite a bit. Flew a, um, I flew an armed up helicopter with a lot of armament. Um, got a chance to, to get even with some folks that were... <laughs> It's <laughs> there's, there's some other countries in it that when I flew the slick bird, they were like making me run. I'm like, okay, I got I got you back now. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> if you see what if you see one of these birds, um, it's already too late for you. That means we probably saw you miles and miles ago. Got you. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh man, that must be yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine. Rick, your time in the military, would you um, has it had an effect on you mentally, would you say, positively, negatively, or in any way? Yeah, I think both. Uh, I think both, like, um, there's this heightened awareness, and maybe it might be hypersensitivity, 
Um, and that's just because if you're used to, I mean, if you're used to being under fire, um, you're going to take that mentality of how you might perceive things. You're going to take it with you wherever you go, mm. you know? And that can be good or bad. I mean, it's, it's very challenging. Um, like post-traumatic stress is a real thing. But when you're operational, you don't really even think about it as much, you know? But then you might hear something or see something um, in the civilian sector that might take you back a bit. And so in that way, it can be, it can be negative. But I mean, post-traumatic stress is real for even certain civilians. You know, it depends on the type of job you do. You can, you can get some post-traumatic stress. Um, and then in other ways, it's really good because um, if you have a heightened awareness for certain things, you can, you can stay ahead of potential problems that the average civilian would not even think about. Um, just because they never thought about it that way. It's not that they, I mean, they just never thought about it. Condition for it, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it does, like, it really does, like, you really, okay, so I work for a church right now. Prior to that, I was, I was a state trooper. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I can't take the, I got to be careful how I take the operational side of things, you know, because the average civilian is not even thinking like that. And if you're too hypersensitive, they're gonna they're gonna repel it a little bit, you know. Mm. Like, hey man, just relax, you know. And meanwhile, sometimes in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but what if this happens? Yeah, but what if this happens? But that's because I've been on the receiving end of a hey, this just happened before. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Would you say that? Um, so having that heightened awareness, like, does it? If if you could reduce it or get rid of it, would you? I think that's a good question there. Um, no, I, I don't know if I would get rid of it, right? And and here's my here's my best example of it is when when, when you're flying helicopters, right? We would take the helicopter up to the edge of its limits, but you would know what the limit is. Yeah. So yeah. that I could introduce my own limit prior to the limit of yeah. the helicopter. And so I think it's really important that I'm grateful for my experiences, knowing the limit and then tailoring that limit yeah. to my environment is really important to me for me to do. Mm. You know? Yeah. And I have to recognize the environment that I'm in and not expect everybody to like wrap themselves around my environment because my environment of thought process might not be appropriate for where I'm actually am. But for me to tailor my thought process and my mental focus into where, into my specific environment, you know, and sometimes, so that, that knowing the limits, cause I've been at the limits now, right. It's really important for me to, to know how to scale it back. So I wouldn't yeah. change any of that. So do you think it's improved your quality of life or not improved it? Me, I think it's improved my quality of life. Now, yeah. it, depends, it depends. You might have to ask Nick. As yeah. The reason I asked that was I'd done like a program, um, like a course. And in this course, there was an ex-military guy 
and he was teaching us like um, hand-to-hand combat and stuff like that. And he was teaching us awareness of, of situational awareness and stuff like that. And his awareness was like insane. Like he was like, you mustn't get in your car without looking underneath, looking all the way around. You do not press your button until you are right up against your car. You have a look in the back seat to make sure nobody's getting in your seat. And I was like, I said, mate, you can't be having, like, he, he would say if he, he wouldn't go to bars. If he did, he would stand with his back against the wall. And I was saying, like, I went, this is all amazing. I went, but it, it, it really seems as though it's really, like, affecting the quality of your life. Like, he was obsessed with it. He was like, no, you, you, you don't hire cars when you're away. I, like, never, ever hire a car because they'll do this and <laughs> never do this because that. And I was like, I was just thinking, yeah. and I said to him, and he, he didn't, he didn't give me an answer. And I asked him, and he he wouldn't give me an answer. And, and it, it, that can't give you a good quality of life. Like living in that fear, mm. you know what I mean? He was living in total fear state. Um, Constant worst case scenario, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was insane. It was like, but at the same time, he said he had a heightened awareness. And the reason he didn't go to pubs anymore was because he could feel it already going to go off before it was already going to go off. And he could, he could sense like that you could see the people who, who were like the wrong people and, and, and he and know that there was something going to happen. And then he didn't trust himself not to react first. So he would, he would, he wouldn't put himself into, into he wouldn't go into bars or situations because he might react first before they did, because he, he had this awareness that something was going to happen. Yeah, I think he's living, I would have to say that he's living in the red. Like yeah, he is, yeah, yeah. he has reached those limits and he's just, he has not left the environment that has put him in the red. Yeah. Right. And he's taken that into every environment that he's going. And man, I couldn't live like that. Y'all met my wife. No. <laughs> like, no. Now, if I was by myself, I'm not saying I couldn't exhibit. I do exhibit some, like some of that. But um, no, man. Like I like to go out. Like I like to have a life with my wife. Yeah. Uh, with my kids. Mm. Um, and I mean, there are certain times that I I feel I feel okay. Like like just closing closing folks out and I think I have to be careful with that yeah, because yeah. it may be for no real good reason other than I've been in the red, I've lived in the red before. But you know, me and Nick, we try to we try to do life. You know, I just can't I can't you, you can't live like that, you know. So I told you I'm a Christian man. So I, I tend to believe that what Jesus said, I come to my, that I might give you life and life to the fullest. So with me, I just want to like live in that fullness. I like being around people and stuff like that. So I, I try to think the best of my environment, but, but realizing that it could turn south and let me at least be somewhat prepared. Yeah. Because, yeah. But, you know, I think every, to me, I think every man should probably uh, want to do that. Like be prepared for the worst a little bit, but enjoy your life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. So from from Black Hole Pilot, obviously you mentioned before um, that you were a state trooper. Um, if I'm right, 
or is, is something along those lines as well? Is that, is that right? Big River, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, what, what, yeah. like what, what is the role of a sheriff? Because, like, we see sheriffs on films, and like, yeah. again, that's just cool as hell. <laughs> so, if I may digress a little bit about state troopers, yeah, particularly Texas state troopers, they're just the best. Okay, <laughs> that's enough digression. I just want to say, I just want to put that out there on the podcast that <laughs> Texas state troopers are absolutely the best. No. <laughs> Don't well, start a war now, Rick. Don't start a war. <laughs> like, but I just, I, I love that job so much. Um, and you say, well, why are you not doing it? Well, um, just because you love it doesn't mean, like, there, I think, I think there's certain seasons in life where um, you can't always do what you love. You might have to do um, the next season because it's important, not just for you. Um, and I, from, you, you can tell from my background, I've done a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I love being a state trooper just because I got a chance to connect with people. Um, when I um, when I prayed about this particular job of being a security director for a church, I also wanted to keep my um, credentialing for being a law enforcement officer. And so the local sheriff department has allowed me to keep my credentialing as a law enforcement officer, um, as a deputy, as a deputy sheriff, uh, but not paid. I just, I pay them in other ways. Uh, yeah. And then they keep my credentialing because I never know, you know, you never know. Uh, I might do something for the state again one day, probably not highway patrol, um, but I never know. Yeah. Uh, I'm certainly enjoying what I'm doing right now. But as a deputy sheriff, um, it's not really as glamorous as what I was doing as highway patrol. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing a picture on either your profile or Nick's profile. And I was trying to find it where you had at one point, was it like a, um, a Dodge Charger or something hanging from in your office? Like from yeah. the scene, like the full car thing? I was like, <laughs> it's absolutely. Yeah, uh, the actual car? Yeah. No, like, that was, are you talking about like a model of a car? Yeah, yeah, like a frame, but like, yeah. Like, yeah. If you've got that picture, <laughs> send us that picture as well. I have to look at, yeah, I have to see where, where it is. Yeah, I'd love to yeah. see it. Yeah, but, but just yeah, so, amazing because it's the pro. I was like the black and white, like the frame model yeah, of it. You know yeah. what I mean? and having that open was it in your office? I'm sure it was in your office or something. I think you might actually think that was a frame when actually that was a real car. <laughs> <laughs> I so it was so was it a full car? Was it just like did it look life size? Was it what? Well, did it look like life size? Like a real? Oh, size? It, looked, oh it was huge. Yeah, I think it was my car. <laughs> Yeah. Nuts, is it, man? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hanging from the ceiling. Why not? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. I had to look at the seat, man. I might just be misunderstanding, but I drove a, a Dodge Charger for a few years. Well, for two years. Nice car. Yeah, man. Nice. Why did you um, quit as a state as a law enforcement officer? Well, um, I'm still. So I'm still still a law enforcement officer, I'm just not on patrol. Mm. Um, because I was very connected to my church, the Celebration Church, it's a big, big church. Um, we have a Georgetown campus. We have a campus in central Austin, Texas, which is not south of here. Um, we have two, we have 14 campuses in Mozambique, Africa. And then we have a campus in Italy. 
And so Celebration Church is a huge, huge church. It's kind of spread out. Probably maybe like 14 to 15,000, call it, their home. And they were looking for somebody to head up the Ministry of Safety and Security. And since I was a part of the church, I just, I thought I would apply for the job, you know? And I said, if Celebration, if Celebration calls me to do the job for them, then I'll forego um, a lot of things, uh, including a certain level of finances, but I'll forego something that I enjoy doing uh, to do something that, um, I don't want to say it wrong, because not that I don't enjoy it. It's different. It's a different type of enjoyment. Right. Mm. So, so now I'm working full time as a director over, over security, safety and security stuff mm. for the church, which is going back to that heightened awareness. A lot of that comes into play with, with my background. I think my military background is even more effective in that environment because we're very much um, behind the scenes but we're very we're very proactive in making sure that the environment as best we can is a safe environment for people that want to that want to worship there mm. uh, i am a member of the church i'm very much a part of the church um and so i'm like well i'm doing this because i think i'm called to do this right now so it's kind of like but i'm open i'm open to to doing state policing again yeah. i really am you know but I don't think it's any worse or any better. I think mm. it's just a different calling. Mm. You know? what, what's the difference? Or, or is there any difference? So you, you say like the Celebration Church, like what's? So Celebration Church is um, a, what we would call a non-denominational church. Um, it's connected to a church by commission and body called the Association of Related Churches. So there's a lot of ARC, association related, there's a lot of ARC churches, um, but it's definitely not necessarily a mainstream Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic. Or, yeah. Matter of fact, we have a lot of people from those different backgrounds that, that attend celebration. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, I tell you what though, man, it's, it's like a different vibe. Like if, if somebody would, who's never, who's maybe been to church years ago and they would come to celebration, they'd probably be blown away in a lot of ways because they, they were like, man, this is like, I never thought that the church would be like this, like up to date, yeah. up to date with music, up to date with, with, with dress, up to date with the building structure. Just like, you know, so yeah, it's, it's a really cool vibe. Right now we've been, because of COVID, we've been virtually, we've definitely been leading the way in virtual services. Mm. Uh, we're about to get back into our building. We have, um, man, we have 110, at the, at the main headquarters, our main campus, 110 acres. And on that 110 acres, um, there's a 90,000 square foot building. Uh, and some other uh, some other buildings that we use, but the the center, if you ever fly into Austin Bergstrom Airport, um, the same some of the same architects that designed the Austin Bergstrom Airport also designed our church because Pastor Joe uh, Champion, what a name by the way, 
champions, yeah, senior pastors, champions. champions. Yeah. Um, he wanted it modeled after the airport because people in the concourse, matter of fact, we call the beginning when you walk in the concourse because where people do life, where they connect to their ultimate destination. Um, and so it's very much for us, very relevant, very up to date. Um, but that's just Western culture. I told you we're also in Mozambique, Africa as well. Yeah. Um, with 14 campuses there. So we believe we're up to date there as well. We have a university here, Southeastern University actually has an extension on the campus of Georgetown. Uh, we have a school of the champions in Mozambique, Africa from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. So before they get to college. Um, so the church has been doing a lot. And during this time, I don't know what some other churches are going through, but we just like exploded in growth. Yeah, we we exploded in growth. And so how do we define growth? Well, well, people tend to like invest their resources in, and so that also tells us we're growing, because people are investing their resources. But I think that's because we are very good stewards of folks' resources, you know. So yeah, we're doing, we're blessed. That's all. Nice, good work, Rick. One last question, because we're going to have to wrap this up soon. We could talk for, sure. for I think, but we asked this on, on all of them, on all of our little podcasts. If you could go back in time and give your younger self a bit of advice, what would you tell yourself? Take your time. It's a tough question. <laughs> That's really a tough question. Mm. Especially when you've done so much, right? Yeah. But what's funny is, in doing so much doesn't mean that you gain, uh, you're moving, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're getting progress. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I think I've gained progress. You know, I think I would just, uh, I would say, hey, just find those times to spend with your loved ones. Cause I was, I was super, super busy. And so find those quality of time moments, you know, to spend with my sons and my daughter and, of course, Nick and I were always trying to look for that. But our kids, when they were young, I was gone a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, just find those quality times and space. You can't get them back. Julian's 27, Jordan's 24, and Hadley's now 11, you know? And I think Nick and I have modeled that pretty well. And we, we try to date all the time. We've been married 30 years, but you think that we're like newlyweds because we truly like, love each other i've seen some of your videos mate i saw a video of you and you and nick dancing the other day on, on i think on facebook page he's got some moves <laughs> yeah. <hasn't> he? yeah. <laughs> i learned them all moves. learned them all from her yeah. not from me she danced way better than me but yeah just find those quality time with with, with family and in all our getting make sure we get those moments with our families because we can't get them back yeah man important stuff yeah perfect Per perfect bit of uh, advice for everyone to end the podcast on as well. I think so, yeah. Perfect Thank you guys so much. That's very Excellent. Awesome. Thanks for Rick. taking the time, Rick, mate, to uh, to talk to us. Very interesting. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been captivated. Yeah. I've just been like, <laughs> I've just been captivated listening. Amazing. I'll tell you what, you guys are pretty good. You actually pulled some emotion out of me that hadn't come out in a long time. That's <laughs> all good. Get it out. Yeah, it's all cool, man. I feel like there's a lot, a lot more in you to 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 talk about, Rick. I feel like there's a load of stories in in there. We'll maybe do another one. We'll maybe get you back again, and we'll um we'll have another chat. Eh? 
Thanks, man. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate you guys, man. Thank you very much. Rick, top man. We'll see you again soon. Right. All right. Talk to you soon. Appreciate it. We're off. Yeah.